All right, good morning, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapters 12 and 13, that's what we'll be going over today. Finish up the book. Next week, we'll start Esther, Lord willing. Uh, while you're turning there um, tonight, 7 o'clock, corporate prayer time. That's our monthly prayer meeting. You're welcome to join us for that at 7. And then um, this Wednesday, uh, there'll be no Wednesday night service here. It'll be out at the kids' camp as we kick that off um, and out there to support them and encourage them. So it'll still be at 7 o'clock out at the kids' camp at Mazingo. If you don't know where that is, just Google it and you'll find it. Pretty easy to find. Um, and then we'll pick back up again the following Wednesday back here again. But we wanted to give them a good send-off. Be around a fire, be kind of a short teaching about parables, um, as that's going to be our theme for the camp, and uh, give them a good send-off. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we go through it, that we'd receive it with gladness. We learned that on Wednesday night, that those who received Peter's message with gladness, they were blessed, they were saved, they were filled with your spirit. And uh, it's in the obedience to your word that uh, that's where we find peace, um, hope, joy. All those things you promised us are uh, easily found on your roadmap as you just lead us through your word to that place. And so God, help us to just accept that and to enjoy that ride this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah doesn't end well. <laughs> At first service, I found myself yelling most of the entire service. So if you're visiting, well, earplugs are in the back, I guess. It's not that I was angry, but I felt the passion of Nehemiah. Nehemiah uh, is a man of God who just had such a passion and heart for the Lord, even when not in the presence of his own country and countrymen, he always wanted to know how they were doing, and we know that as we've been going through this. And when he hears things aren't going well there, he feels this call, this burden on his heart, and he answers it. He's got that desire to go help his people. And he believes, and he's right in a sense, their problem was that they couldn't worship in safety, that there was rubble all the way around. And there needed to be some organization. There needed to be some leadership. Zerubbabel, the first guy to lead them back, he did his job. Ezra, a priest, did pretty good. But they were wavering. They were uh, coasting. So Nehemiah comes in, and he has some specific skill sets. And you'll get to see some of those happen in chapter 13. Um, he's a very passionate, very powerful, very strong leader. Um, if you were going to hand out a book on spiritual abuse, you might want to hand it to him. And I'm kidding. Because... This isn't even spiritual abuse in chapter 13, considered what we consider spiritual abuse today. And so as we go through 13, keep that in mind. Nehemiah has such a love, like a father has for his kids, and is willing to do whatever it takes to get that through their heads and hearts, that God has their best interests in mind when he tells them where to go, what to do, how to worship, that he's willing to get pretty rough sometimes with them. Similar to a parent watching their toddler run out in the middle of the street, or even an older kid run out in the street, just not thinking, chasing a ball, focused on the ball, not thinking about the safety and how a parent might explode. And it's not an explosion of anger or just flat out, I wish they'd appreciate me more. It's a flat, I love you. And all I can see is a flat kid, and I don't want to see that. And so you might go a little over the top in your rebuke of the child. Well, that's where Nehemiah is. He's built the walls. They've got the temple built. Everything's in order, and they're going to dedicate that 
wall here in chapter 12. Now, I'm not going to suffer through the first 26 verses of all the names. Just keep in mind, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. And all the people that are in different places along the wall, what their job was, what their responsibilities were. And he's going to name a few of those in this chapter 12 for chapter 13. He's telling us in 12 that there was order, that I had people in charge, that I left them in charge, and chapter 13 is how it turns out, and it doesn't turn out well. So in verse 27, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of Netophytus, <laughs> from the house of Gilgal, from the fields of Geba, from Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall. So he gathers everyone together. These villages of the singers, I can just, I think of an artist colony, you know, a bunch of guys beating drums with long haired dreadlocks kind of thing. And not how it probably looked, but that's the idea. We're just going to stay close to the city, man, you know, and, and sing to Jesus, you know, kind of, well, it was at the time Jesus, but so he gathers all these guys in, but they built their own little communities, little groups, little villages. And it's all going like, like they'd hoped. All these instruments, all these talents and skills being brought up, all the Levites being brought in from all over the country, because, you know, they were dispersed so that a spiritual leader was within a stone's throw of anybody in Israel, which is good. Good thoughts, good, good plan by God, good uh, Nehemiah implementing that plan, very wise. And so he brings them back, though, for the dedication. Let's get everybody back here, and so they bring them back. And so he brought back all the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large Thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right, and obviously the other went to the left. I'm not going to go through the names for you, but they get in two different groups, and they describe where they are, the fountain gate, the fish gate, all the different sheep gates, everything. They're up on the wall so that all the people can hear, kind of getting a stereo sound, you know, left and right choir going. Really neat. They want to do it big, and I can appreciate that. One of the songs was a new song today. I really got into it. Um, during first service, it was the first time I had ever heard that song about God's always been there and always been the one. And I got to th so many things run through my mind when I'm preparing for worship and I'm singing songs and I'm getting my heart right to teach. And uh, I'll, I'll take you through my thought process just for that one song, thinking about how um, I'm, I'm a father. And I'm so thankful that God had designed uh, this world to reproduce the way he designed it to be re to reproduce. He could have just continued to make mounds of dirt and breathed into them. I mean, we do know that, right? That's how Adam was formed. I mean, Eve got taken out of the side, and he could have done that forever. Just kept doing that. But he stopped after the first two and decided that I want those two to be creators. I want them to begin to bring life into the world. I want them to know. Now, given Adam and Eve's disobedience, Probably not, in my opinion, the wisest move to give them permission to take care of a child or a human being, you know, to train them up in the ways that they should go to follow after the Lord. I think at that point, as a, as a God, if I was God, thank goodness I'm not, I would have said, I'm just going to stick to the dirt and see if the next person will be obedient. But that's not what he did, because he knew the 
the best way to teach Adam and Eve what he feels like and what it's like for him and for them to appreciate his heart for them is for them to have a child to raise of their own, to train up in the ways, to watch that kid not do what they're supposed to do. What are you doing? Sowing fig leaves, Dad. Oh, don't sow fig leaves. Son, I've been there, you know. And I'm so thankful that he did that. And so as I was singing that song, I'm thinking, I'm so glad that my father gave that to me because now I can identify with the Lord that way, what it means to be a father, what it means to raise children, what it must feel like for a rebellious kid, and also what it feels like to have an obedient kid, you know, when we're right. And you're going to see that here. There's great joy in chapter or verse 44 here. So much joy when everything's going just like it's supposed to. And those days are wonderful when you have kids like that. Another part of that song, I began to think about how I, I, I feel like that. Like, I know it's about God, but I feel like as soon as my kids were born, I pulled out a sword and have never put it away. All of a sudden, it was just me, you know, or before them, it was just me, just taking care of myself, making sure that I was okay and I was walking with the Lord. Now I got people, you know. I've got little people that are relying on me, and so now your sword's out. You're, you know, watching your kids, and it's, it's always like that. And then I got to thinking about my boys now. They have families and how they can get now a glimpse as they maybe never fully understood what dads do. They appreciated what they could see. But now that they have their own children and their swords are out, they're like, oh, my goodness. Dad, hey, Dad, when does this fighting end? It doesn't. I'm still praying for you. I'm still fighting for you and your family. And you're not even living with me anymore. It just goes on and on and on. And they begin to experience it. And it goes like that. And you appreciate then your father. And your father appreciates your grandfather. And you appreciate God. And it just works. God just works. As they dedicate this wall, as everybody is singing songs and reminding themselves of God, they're, they're feeling that moment right now. They're going through their minds. I can't believe we're standing here with all these walls. I can't believe there's a place to worship. I can't believe all, we're back in the land. We're not in captivity anymore. I mean, all these emotions and these, how did we get there? How did we get back? Isn't God gracious and merciful in the songs they would sing, just making their hearts full? It's a really beautiful moment here in chapter 12. In verse 40, so the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I... And the half of the rulers with me, the priests, Eliakim, and Masaiah, Minjamin, which is like Benjamin, but with Minjamin. There's always that mom that's got to just change one word. Yeah. This is, well, I, won't, I won't do an example because that'll, someone in the crowd, that's my mom, that's my name. Okay. Minjamin, Micaiah, Elioniah, okay, Zechariah, Hananiah, with trumpets. I like that. I can pronounce trumpets. Also, Messiah, Shemaiah, and I say Aya for all of them because it's, you know, it's close. Eliezer, Uzai, Johanan, Melchijah, Elam, Elam, and Ezer. The singers sang loudly with Jez, uh, Jezehiah, the director. So the choir director's going and the people are singing loudly. Verse 43, beautiful verse. Count how many times he talks about Joy, whether that's rejoiced or joy. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far off. That's five times in one verse. You think he's trying to get a point across? 
when everything jives, when everything's clicking, when everything's where it's supposed to be, the kids are singing songs. God is up there listening, just loving the music, listening to the worship songs come. Everybody's doing what they were created to do. Everybody's thinking the same thing. The walls were all focused on worshiping of God and the protection and Nehemiah coming and Zerubbabel and Ezra and Babylon and the captivity and this beautiful story coming to a conclusion. There was great joy in this obedience. This is obedience. There's a difference between compliance and obedience. Compliance is telling your son, sit down, and they sit down with their arms crossed looking at you. That's compliance. It's not obedience. And oftentimes the church has made the mistake and pastors have made the mistake of teaching compliance. Okay, I guess I can't have any fun this Friday. Fine, I'll stay home. That's not obedience. That's compliance. Obedience is this. Obedience brings joy. Obedience is the accepting of God's word, his plan for your life, the salvation he offers you, the grace, the mercy, all the forgiveness that you get from him. That's obedience. And when you receive all of that, you have great joy in your life. And you begin to sing songs, not because it's the next one on the list or the next words to come up on the screen, but because, oh, you just can't keep your heart down. I can't but worship the Lord. I have great joy. It said that for God had made them rejoice with great joy. That means he's happy. There's nothing like it when I have those days with the kids where we're all working as a family or we're all playing as a family or whatever it is, and everybody's together, you know? And everybody's happy that we're doing whatever we're doing. You know, there are times when working isn't fun and it's just something you got to do. I understand that. But there are times when it's fun. We did, uh, we finally got the hay picked up last Sunday. I knew you were all very concerned about that last week. It's okay. We got it up. Had some good people come and, and uh, bring their trailer and their trucks, and the family came, and we all just got together and lost about 40 pounds each. It was wonderful. I mean, it was great. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, I'm old, or older, I should say. I'm not necessarily old, old, but I'm older. I had changed my shirt three different times in that four-hour period because it had just soaked through and was covered. It was gross, you know. And Bo, at the end of the night, says, we're going to do that again tomorrow. Smacked him. No, I said, <laughs> I said, no, son, we're not. He goes, you kidding me? You like that? Oh, he was all about it. All about that hay. All about riding on top, completely unsafe. Five stories up on the hay, you know, going through fields, almost falling off. He's all about it. Just at, And all the people, just all the people just loved it. He had great joy doing that. That's where they are right now. The work is done. They are tired. The walls are built. Their hands are rubbed raw. Calluses like you wouldn't believe. I mean, they some some serious building. And we're talking 12-hour shifts constantly. For months, they had 12-hour shifts of building these walls up and getting this all put together. And at the end, they're all singing and dedicating, and they're looking at it, and they're saying, this is what happens when we're all in tune with God and doing what God's called us to do. And there's great joy. It's a wonderful place. Verse 44, and at that time, or at that same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouses for the offerings and the first fruits and the tithes to gather them into, uh, in, into them from the fields of the cities, the portions specified for 
by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered there. He writes that down because it's going to come into play in chapter 13, verse 10. He's letting us know ahead of time, I did put people in charge. There were rooms set aside for this. There were people that were responsible for this, and we had this all set up. And at the time, people really enjoyed the priests and the Levites. They really appreciated them. Now, one of two things happens here. It's sort of the chicken and the egg thing, which came first. We don't know, but I'm going to hit both of them and explain both of them. But somewhere along the line, the people stopped appreciating the Levites and the priests. And it may have been on them. Or it may have been on the priests and the Levites too. And we'll see that here in a minute. But it was set up, according to Nehemiah, the way it was supposed to. Nehemiah, as a spiritual father, is giving them the best chance. Showing them the best way. Giving them the best opportunity to have a strong beautiful relationship with God. It's up to them to do it, to walk it. And Nehemiah is going to realize that that's the weak point right there. That's the weak link in this whole thing is now it's up to you to walk in it. Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon, his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers, songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave the portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. Everybody was taken care of. This was a constant thing. You would walk through the city, and there would always be the pillar of smoke going up, and you would realize someone is interceding for me. That was a reminder to those who had everyday jobs. You'd have to go do this. You have to go do your work. But that pillar of smoke, you could always look to the center and say, there it is. Whether that was when they were in the tabernacle or in the temple, there was always that smoke going up. And it could be reminded, therefore, the priests are praying for me. And, of course, that's likened to Christ. Jesus has ever lives to make intercession for us. And now we don't have the pillar of smoke anymore. But hopefully the Holy Spirit in us reminds us constantly he is for you and he's praying for you all the time. All the time. He ever lives and is always praying for you. Likewise, the singing was going on every single day, all the time. There was always that melodious sound. Maybe it wasn't as loud because you were further away, but you could always hear it. And it was a beautiful song to them, a beautiful ringing in the ears. It wasn't annoying. It wasn't the beat of the drums that they would have from the worship of all these foreign gods all around them. It was just clear, like a ringing bell, beautiful sound coming from the center. Chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. That's hearing and doing. Hearing is of no value if there's no doing. James tried to get that across to us. You've got to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Nodding and saying, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They went and did it. Here's a story with that. If you don't know the background, it's in Numbers 22 and 23. I'll briefly go over the story. Children of Israel trying to find their way back. God is leading them to the promised land. And 
Anybody that met them with bread and water was a blessing to them, allowed them to pass through. Whatever it was that they could do for them were always blessed. And those who came against them, those who didn't understand what was happening or wasn't in tune, thought, saw them as a threat, as these people did, well, they were cursed. These people see all these Israelites camped down there, two plus million people camped, and they were concerned. Are they coming to take our land? They didn't see an opportunity to bless strangers trying to get to their homeland because they weren't sure their homeland wasn't where they lived. How do we know they're not going to displace us? Regardless, they hired Balaam. Balaam's a hired spiritual gun. He's a prophet. And they thought that they could pay him enough money to curse the nation of Israel. So they paid him. First, he wouldn't come. Balaam's donkey tries to stop him and begins talking with him. And that's a whole other story in and of itself. They finally get Balaam there. Balaam's on top of a mountain. He's about to pronounce a curse. And all that comes out of his mouth is blessing. God intercedes. By the Spirit, there's nothing Balaam can do but bless the people. And so he says, well, and of course, the people are like, that's not what we hired you to do. You're fired. No, 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 no. I want to keep the money. So they move him to another hill, and they go from hill to hill, trying to curse, and every time he's going, oh, God, I just really wish you'd bless them and help them to have lots of kids, and I pray their lives stuck, and they'd be really wealthy. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, it never came out right. Well, these people who were the enemies have now moved their way into the lives of the nation of Israel. They're mixed in there. It's a dangerous thing. They're not... Followers of the Lord. They're not worshipers. They're Ammonites and Moabites, and they worship their gods. And they're mixed in there with them. Can't have that mix. And so he calls them to be removed. And so they do. They separate from them. Now, some will, you know, the literal, oh, that's too bad. Those poor people, they get separated and get kicked out or moved out. Well, spiritually speaking, we all have these Ammonites and Moabites that were always our enemies and have been our enemies in our lives. It could be a thing, it could be a person. And all of a sudden, now that we're believers and walking with God, they weasel their way back into your life, and you, they're like just a piece of furniture you're used to. You know, you can't seem to throw away those old sneakers. You just keep them for some reason, even though it's time to throw them away. You know, well, those things need to go in our lives. We're going to see that here again with Tobiah and Sam Ballot. We'll talk about them here in a minute. The most important part of this is they heard the word of God just in the reading of it, and they heard it so well, just like we talked about on Wednesday night, they received it with gladness, and receiving it with gladness means you did something about it. God showed me this in my life, and I did something about it. Not being a forgetful hearer, forgetful seer, one who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like when he walks away. They read the word of God, and they were changed, and they did something about it. They knew obedience was very, very important. Doesn't matter how well they got along with the Ammonites and the Moabites or how much of a blessing they were to them or what they would do for them or how they were used as slaves or whatever it is. They needed to go because they're a danger and a threat. And so they did. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, we just read that, right? He was in charge, was allied with Tobiah. Sambalat and Tobiah are the two guys from the beginning of the story that were always opposed to the nation of Israel and always opposed to the work of God happening in Israel. They were always the ones writing the letters back to Babylon or whoever was in charge at the time and telling them, hey, they're going to rise up against you. They're going to be rebellious. Always just, they were a wrench in the works constantly. 
And Nehemiah was not pleased with them and told them, you have, no, you have no right, you have no heritage, get out of here. And they were furious at that. Now, Nehemiah is gone at this point, And he's going to explain that here in a minute. And as soon as he leaves, Eliashib the priest, now maybe Nehemiah always had a thing about this guy. Well, he's a priest. He's a priest. And he's not doing anything wrong right now. As long as Nehemiah's eye was on these guys, everybody was doing what they were supposed to do. That's a clue. That's a red flag. As long as your eye is upon them, they're all obedient or compliant. But as soon as he goes back to being the cupbearer, all of a sudden, Tobiah shows up and aligns himself with Elishab, or maybe he always was. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithe of grain, the new wine, the oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offering for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. While I'm gone, this high priest moves out of this room what was supposed to be the wages for all of these people to continue to live and to work and to be a blessing in the house of God. They moved all of that out. And they moved this guy in. And now he's living in this big room in the temple. One of two things took place here. Either money stopped coming in because everybody's just kind of getting loosey-goosey with their spirituality. Nehemiah, boy, he was right on it. Whenever he was around watching, boy, they were like, you know, we don't do that, but you know what I mean. But as soon as he leaves, maybe they stopped. And so that room was open. Maybe they needed help. I'm saying a lot of maybes because we don't know. Or maybe this high priest moved all that stuff out into another room, moved this guy in, and the people are like, you know what? I am not giving my one-third shekel to this guy. You told us not to listen to him when he was shouting at us while we were on the wall. You told, you told us not to pay attention to him. We told him he had no right and heritage. We listened to all those warnings that Nehemiah gave us, and now he's living in the place? I've lost faith in you. I've lost confidence in you as a high priest. You're not looking out for him. What changed about this guy? Why is he living here? So maybe they said, I'm not supporting that anymore. I can't. Could have been. Anyway, Nehemiah's not going to have any of it. It says, Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the court of the house of God, and it grieved me bitterly. And that's an understatement, as we're about to read. Therefore, I threw all his household goods, and I bet he did it personally, of Tobiah out of the room. You get evicted. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms. Wash this. This pig's been in here. I mean, he's mad. And I brought back uh, into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Nehemiah's kind of the Holy Spirit, isn't he? Comes into my life and cleans it out and sets it up just like it's supposed to. And not that he ever leaves, but might check that room again later on and say, what is this in here? Well... I thought I got rid of Tobiah in your life. I thought you said you were never going back to Tobiah. I thought Tobiah was done with, and Tobiah was your enemy, and you hated Tobiah, and there was nothing to do with Tobiah. Remember the vow? Remember the promise? Remember the afterglow? Remember the time of prayer? Remember on your knees? Remember you're crying, you're weeping? 
Yeah. Well, we came to an arrangement. I moved him back in again. Mm. He needs to go. We need to cleanse this room. And don't just leave it empty. Fill it with the things of God again. This is cyclical for these people. And it can be for us too, unfortunately. Now, Nehemiah, I think, is realizing for the first time, if I'm not here, this is what happens. This is their default. This is what they fall back into. If I'm not watching, as soon as I step away for a few days, I mean, I don't know how many days, but a few days, and I come back, they've already got Tobiah living in the house. He goes on. After I threw him out, verse 10, I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. I wonder what that looked like. He's a handsy guy. He talks about laying hands on people. He's going to pull some hair out here in a minute. I bet he put them in their place. Sit down. Chewing them out. I leave you guys. Strong leader here. Too strong for a lot of people. Too strong. A lot of people couldn't handle this. A lot of people can't handle this. As a dad, you have those moments where your response, you feel, was proportionate to the danger. The kids always understood if I yelled or if I got mad, I hope they understood that it's from a place of love and fear. I was scared for them. The direction you're heading, the thing that you're doing, whatever it might have been, is going to be bad news for you. So if you feel I'm over the top, it's because I'm looking in the, I'm looking at the long view here, and this is bad. This kind of rebellion done at the wrong time with the police officer is going to put you in jail. This kind of whatever in the wrong place and atmosphere, other than me, is going to get you into so much trouble. Nehemiah has a father's heart for these people. And he's like, you don't understand. You have to have the Levites in place. They can't be so double-minded that they're focused on their work and supplying for their families that they can't take care of your spiritual needs because your spiritual needs are vital to your existence. It can't be secondary. Your spiritual needs are primary. You were made to worship God. And when you're not worshiping God or led to God, you're not doing your primary mission. You're doing secondary things and it's become primary. You can't serve two masters. They can't. You've got to get them back. Why are they not getting what they need? Why are you not bringing in the money? It could have gone either way. Well, because Tobias taken half of it. Oh, I kicked him out. He's gone. Or, I don't know. Crop wasn't that good this year. You know, whatever. I mean, it was just two chapters ago, chapter 11, where they all said, yes, yes, yes. You bet, you bet, you bet. Two chapters later. Eh, that's a very dangerous thing for us all. We live in a world full of very few Nehemiahs. Nehemiah is realizing not everybody's on board like he is. Not everybody's as dedicated. Nehemiah is a cupbearer, clear over here, hears about the struggles back in Israel and does whatever he can do to make sure they're taken care of and help them. 
and stay strong throughout it, fighting all their battles, fighting all their enemies, understanding that they're weak and they're disheveled and they need help and organization. I'm here to do this for you. How to give you solid footing. Okay, you're on solid footing. I'm heading back. I come back to visit. You know, it's all gone. It's all going right back to where it was. Ah. Gathers the leaders again. Remember, I put you guys in charge. Remember, I thought you, we had this all organized. What, what is happening? Then all Judah brought the tithes and the grain offerings and the new wine and the oil in the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah, the priest, and Zadok, the scribe, and of the Levites, Padadiah, or Pediah. Uh, and next to uh, them was Hanan and the son of Zechar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. So we appointed more people. He can't do this by himself. He can't always be there. He can't always be watching. So he's putting people in charge that are faithful, or seem to be. And so here's what he says after doing this. I think this is his first glimpse into God. I've done everything I can do. This is out of my control. Remember me, O oh my God. Concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its service. You're going to have to work with these people, God. I, don't, I can't do it. And that's a good thing for him to realize. That's all he can do. You bring the horse to the water. That's all you can do. The horse has to decide to drink. In those days... Nehemiah says, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them, which is all he can do, about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. They had already established that that was going to be their day of rest, according to God's word, that they were going to close the gates. They weren't going to let anybody in. And in fact, told those vendors outside, don't come back here on Sabbath. Just understand, Saturday's off limits. Come back Sunday, but Saturday's off limits. You're not going to be here doing this kind of thing. And they listened. Until one salesman got a little excited and thought he'd just test the boundaries. Nehemiah's gone. Every time the shepherd leaves, the wolf hits the flock. Constantly. Who is it? Hey, it's Tyre. I don't know his name. I'm Bob Tyre. I'm here to sell you fish. We can't open the gates. Yeah, Nehemiah's not here. You just open them a little. I'll slip it under the door. You still be the talent, <laughs> whatever it is. All right, don't tell anybody. That's all it took. Bob, what are you doing? I just bought a fish. This was my fish on Saturday. I know it was such a great deal. Bob from Tyre is here. Give me a fish. I'll get two. I'll take two next Saturday. And slowly but surely, the gates stayed open. And they walked in because one person saw advantage. And they said, well, I'm not going to. I want to be obedient to God. But if being obedient to God means I'm going to lose my business or lose my opportunity, and all of a sudden, it just steamrolls out of control. And now the gates are open and all the things are happening like they're not supposed to happen. And Nehemiah says, what are you doing? I warned you about this. This is for your spiritual health. The Sabbath is like the number one thing for you. It isn't for us anymore. Jesus is our Sabbath. And so I guess technically it is the number one thing for us is he's our rest from our works. 
But that's exactly why they went to Babylon to begin with. For 490 years, the nation of Israel never let the land rest for a Sabbath year's rest. And so the land got all 70 years at once while they were in captivity. They got all the rest back. The land did. And he says, you're doing it again. Next thing we know, we're going to be planting crops for seven straight years, seven straight years, and we're never giving the land a rest. And we're going back to Babylon on this path. We've been down this road. We've been around this mountain. This is a merry-go-round. Something has to change. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do, by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on the Israel by profaning the Sabbath? So it was. At the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be open until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought uh, in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night out uh, around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I smile because I get that. Here's the thing. What does he have? What does Nehemiah have? Does he have obedience or does he have compliance? It's compliance. I closed the gates. I set my servants in charge of it. I told them to leave or I beat them up. You know, that's basically what he says. I'll tell you what, you know. He's got to go home sometime. He's got to leave sometime. So they left. Nehemiah feels that. The gates aren't open because of me. The guys are leaving because of me. If I leave, this all reverts. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this also. And spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. I skipped the part. He told the Levites to command. He commanded them to cleanse themselves and they should get ready for the Sabbath day and so on. Apparently they weren't. Apparently, they weren't doing what they needed to do for the Sabbath day. Nobody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Okay, not supposed to do that, but it gets worse. Worse. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. Now, why is that a concern? Because that is what's prominent in their home. We're now worshiping these other gods, these It wasn't that he didn't like mixed marriage. It was that these people don't believe in the true and living God, and they worship these horrible gods like Moloch and Ashtoreth and all these things. And you blend these things together, and they're not into the faith. They're not proselytized into Judaism. We've got a decision we're going to have to make. Now we've got to work. And they're only speaking this language over here. They're only worshiping these gods over here. It's, It's ruining it. The kids are being raised to go to hell. Do you feel the passion that he has? That's why I was yelling all of first service. Am I yelling again? I don't mean to. We just don't have time for Laodicea. We don't have time for lukewarmness in this world. We've got to be on fire. We've got to be Nehemiahs. Everybody in our around us needs to be around a Nehemiah, and you're it. You're the only ones here. I can't preach to them. I can't tell them. I can't encourage them. I can't yell at them. (laughs) 
we've got to be Nehemiahs in our workplaces, in our families, around everybody that we know. We have to be the ones that don't compromise, that aren't bringing in these other things. We have to be the outcasts, I guess. We have to be the sore thumb. We have to be stand out. You know, we have to stand out. Nehemiah is alone in this, except for the guys that he has working for him. And that's a hard thing. But he loves his God, and he loves the people. This all comes from a heart of love for them. He has the Father's heart. He has that Father's heart towards these people. So I contended with them, he says. Look how he contends with them. And cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. And made them swear by God. You know what this looked like? You get this picture in your head? I want this movie made. I'm telling you, gratuitous violence, it'll say in there. He's got these guys by the hair saying, repeat after me. I will not give my sons to their daughters. I will not give, their sons to their I will not give my daughters to their sons. I will not give my daughters to their sons. Good, you got it? No. I'm already balding, you know? They'll grow back. Boy, that's spiritual abuse. It's abusive. Look, as Christians, I hope we understand this. All other roads other than Jesus Christ lead people to hell. I would love to grab people by the hair that would disagree with me and say, repeat after me, all other roads lead to hell other than Jesus Christ. Why are you so angry? The same reason Jesus talked about hell more than any other subject and through the whole New Testament is because his mission was to save people from their destination of hell. John the Baptist was rough. <laughs> you brood of vipers who told you to repent. Some of those guys might have come to repent. Ooh, it was a snake, but okay, you know. All right, get in the water then. If you're going to repent, get on with it already. All right, I'm going, I'm going. You know, rough. Because all of the roads lead to hell. Do we believe that or know that or understand that? Or are we bought into this worldly doctrine that thinks that all roads are close or they get us near? And when we're in heaven, we'll figure it out. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what God says as he goes through this. It's not okay to worship other gods. You must repent from worshiping other gods and worship the true and living God. Otherwise, you're in huge trouble. That's all the Bible talks about. Stop worshiping other gods. Worship the true and living God. Nehemiah is upset because you are going to hell now, and you're raising your children to go to hell, and your grandchildren may even get offered up to sacrifice of Moloch the way you're headed. Of course I'm going to pull some hair to get your attention. He is passionate about these people. Don't you know where you're headed? Don't you know how we got here? <laughs> Where we came from. Don't you remember these things? This world desperately needs Nehemiahs. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there were not, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him, uh, even him, to sin. Should we then hear? of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women. Did you not learn? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, the guy who moved in Tobiah earlier, was a son-in-law of Sanballat. That's his partner in crime, the Hornite. Therefore, I drove him from me. I don't know what that looked like. 
Now, Nehemiah switches here a little bit. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bring the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. This is the third time he prays this. Remember me, O oh my God, for, for good. I've done everything I can do. I cleansed the pagan out of them. It's up to them. It's up to each one of us to walk with God as closely as we want to walk with him. Some people try to get just within fire insurance reach of God. So that when I die, I don't go to hell. That's all I care about. I just don't want to go to hell. Barely complying. Barely obedient. Nehemiah is not in that camp. Nehemiah is all about God, all about what he wants, and has a heart for the people like God has a heart for the people. Passionate about it. And he desperately wants them to know the truth and to walk after him. Now we're going to go to Esther next week. Esther is what's happening, meanwhile, back on the ranch, basically. Esther is back in Babylon, where the captivity is. And this is what God does with her. And the beautiful thing about this is, Nehemiah is doing what he needs to do over here. Esther is doing what she needs to do over here. God is working in two places at the same time. Now, neither one of them maybe know what each other's doing, probably do, but maybe they don't. But God is at work, and he's trying to put things together and give it. He's working. So how do I conclude this message? (laughs) Because all you can do is say it. And all you can do is say, yes, I want to be a Nehemiah. I want to be an Esther. I want to be used by God as much as he wants to use me. I want to be as close to God as I possibly can, not as far away as I can possibly get by with. You've got to decide whether you want to be Nehemiah or not, whether you want to stand in this world. This world is coming to an end. Jesus is going to return. He's going to take us home to be with him. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's because we've accepted Christ. But I want him to look at my life and see that it was dedicated to him, that I was a Nehemiah, that I was focused and I was not compromised in all these areas. And it takes vigilance and it takes, well, unbendiness. He was not a very bendy person. He was very rigid. And that bothered a lot of people. And that's just going to have to be the way it is, I guess. But their spiritual health was on the line. And if he wasn't rigid, fixed, standing upon the rock, they'd be in much more serious trouble than they are right now. They've got to say yes. We all have to say yes. We all have to follow. We all have to receive his word with gladness. We all have to apply it to our lives. We have to hear what just was said this morning, and then we have to go do it. It's the only way it works. I didn't mean to yell. But if I did yell, it's because I love you. I love you. And I I want you to do well. And I want to do well. And I want you praying for me. And I'll be praying for you. And I want to be rigid. And I want you to be rigid. And I want you to point it out. We need each other. And we need to be solid. This is going to be an interesting year. I hope we're prepared for it. Because it is going forward. It is moving in the direction that is beautiful because Christ is coming. And really, really interesting and turbulent because Christ is coming. And just like the days of Noah, 
you may be the only one shouting from the edge of the ship, get on board, and they'd be laughing at you. But that means so is the coming of the days of Christ. When Christ comes, it's going to be like Noah, and it's going to be like the days of Lot. Plan on it. And be loud like Noah. Be rigid like Nehemiah. Be strong in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We do love you. We know that everything you say is perfect and right. Everything is for us. You're not against us. You are interceding for us. You want us to do well. And us doing well is in obedience to you. Help us to be obedient to you. Not compliant, obedient. Lovingly and and thankfully accepting your word and applying it to our lives. Removing all the sand ballots and Tobiah out of our lives. To cleaning house in our hearts and to filling them with the filling our hearts with the things of you, Lord. I pray that you're glorified in all that we do, in our words, in our in our time management, in our in our in any way that we spend. Lord, I pray that it's for you and you're glorified. We thank you for loving us so much that you give us strong leaders like Nehemiah, like Jesus, flipping tables, but loving kids, like uh, John the Baptist, you know, so beautifully humble when he meets his cousin Jesus, but also very turbulent when he meets the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Lord, we just want to be strong like that. And so, Lord, help us to, to make that decision purposefully that we will be. We will be for you. We will be loud, and we will be strong, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.